Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. As many of you know, my friend Chris Gilmore and I have been developing an online course and community revolving around the world of hunting. If you are new to hunting or have just started your journey into this broad field of food getting, you may feel a little bit overwhelmed by some of the barriers you may experience. Where to hunt, how to get started, how to find your targeted species, and so many more questions often arise among new hunters. On this online worldwide course, we will help guide and mentor you through your journey to become a better hunter, both through greater success, but also through becoming a better steward of the ecosystems you hunt within. Chris and I are both really excited to begin this journey with you and are happy to offer you, my dear podcast listener, a little incentive to join this amazing opportunity. Just go to www.thehuntersjourney.com and use promo code DFNATION100 today and save $100 off the course fee. As well, for our Patreon members, there's a $200 discount that you can access right now. Just go to the Canadian Bushcraft Patreon and you'll have access to the promotional code there. We can't wait to see you soon on your hunter's journey. To know the landscape is to open up a door To feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before We know that you will love this podcast so shut your mouth and listen to canadian bushcraft hey there dragonfly nation this is the canadian bushcraft podcast with your host caleb musgrave and we are coming out a day and a half uh, actually yeah it's a day and a half late uh it's early tuesday morning around two in the morning i'm recording this uh, and the reason we didn't get it out in time is we're really busy working on some canoes, some birch bark canoes that got some damage to them. Uh, they were used very heavily and one of them got even run over by a truck. And so for the last hmm, five, six days, we've just been going all out. We've been going, you know, gangbusters trying to get these canoes repaired. Uh, the, the first one has been finished. We just got to do a little bit of gumming, which is mixing of spruce gum and bear grease. Uh, on some of the seams to help waterproof them so that there's no leaking into the canoe. Beyond that, uh, we now are starting canoe number two early in the morning around uh, 9 a.m. Tuesday morning, we're going to be beginning the second canoe, and that's going to be even more fun. And while we've been working on these canoes, a lot of things have been being used, specifically tools. And I thought about it for a while. We've been trying to think of some good new content for you, and one of the things that keeps coming up is tools of the trade, the tools that are used in bushcraft. And we've done a knife episode. We've done an ax episode. We never actually did a saw episode, which I think we can kind of talk about a little bit tonight on this episode. But uh, mainly I want to get into just talking about all the different kinds of physical tools that can be in your toolkit when we go out in the bush, but also the tools that I specifically carry when I go into the bush. I can't speak on behalf of Rye. I can't speak on behalf of Nikki or anyone else at Canadian Bushcraft and beyond, but what I really truly believe are the important tools to take with you when you're going into the Canadian wilderness, um, especially when it comes down to working with the natural materials out there, whether it be cedar wood, ash, uh, ash wood, spruce root bark, uh, sorry, spruce root bark, <laughs> spruce roots, uh, birch bark and all the other natural resources that we have that we can use 
or some people even say exploit. I don't like the idea of exploiting natural resources. I prefer to work with natural resources in a beneficial way. And that'll be another episode that's going to be coming up. I think we've kind of talked about it enough in the past. I think you've got to kind of understand our perspective and mentality when it comes down to working on the land and not being, you know, destructive and exploitive of the ecosystem. But anyways, what tools do we carry and what tools are the, what tool options are there and talking about these tools in general? Um, these are mostly going to be your cutting tools. Uh, there can be a lot of other tools, but for the most part, we're trying to cut or perforate into these materials for splitting, uh, whether that be for splitting firewood or it is for splitting uh, splints or roots, perforating for drilling holes or for making stitch holes if you have to you know repair your shoes or your boots or repair a piece of your uh camping equipment but also for making things like birch bark baskets birch bark canoes for this example uh but also elm bark uh hickory bark but also working with black ash splints white oak splints cedar splints spruce splints all these amazing resources that we have to our uh, to our disposal to our to our advantage if we know how to work with the landscape we can benefit from that in a very positive manner and so the tools that we're going to kind of cover in this episode are starting off with things like multi-tools saws spoon knives gouge sets chisels machetes chopper knives pocket knives but then we're going to get into the four tool philosophy uh, there's a certain gentleman out there that a lot of people are fans of that has a five tool philosophy, and we're going to kind of break that down into four tools that I really prefer to carry. So we're going to start off with the first one that is multi-tools. Multi-tools are sometimes looked at like the jack of all trades, master of none kind of tool. And I know a lot of people that are very anti-multi-tool. And I know a lot of people that are devoutly, religiously obsessed with multi-tools. And I'm kind of... I'm kind of in between both of those camps. I don't think that multi-tools should be considered your primary tool, but man, can they be helpful? Uh, I trap and when I'm trapping, I have to set wire. I've got to, I've got to use wire to, uh, put together rigs for trap sets. I need to be able to wire my trap into those trap sets. I need to be able to secure all the parts to it and the wire cutters on a multi-tool, uh, if it's got the plier sets, whether it's a Leatherman or a Gerber, I'm not too, you know, particular on the brand. It could be a Victorinox, a uh, Swiss tool. It doesn't really matter to me. What I like is a good pair of solid pliers that have a very good set of wire cutters on them. And those are absolutely necessary for when I'm trapping, for when I'm living long-term in the bush. If I have a machine with me of any kind, or if I have modern camping gear that has screws uh, a good example of that is a pack frame. Uh, if you have a pack frame for hunting and you're carrying out a moose hindquarter and one of the screws gets loose, that can spell disaster. And so being able to tighten those screws down. Another great example is a snowshoe, modern tubular metal snowshoe. Sometimes the bindings get loose and you need to be able to lock those things down, get those things ratcheted down. And therefore a screwdriver is a really good companion. It's a really good friend to have. And that could be in a Swiss army knife. That could be again, in like a Victorinox Swiss tool. That could be a Leatherman, a Gerber. Most good, well-made multi-tools are going to have a screwdriver and pliers with wire cutters on them. Not all of them. Again, like a Swiss army knife is not probably gonna have a set of pliers in it usually, but 
for the most part, those are two really important tools. And yeah, there might be a saw in there. Yeah, there might be an all in there. There might be a file of some sort in there. Those are all great additions. But really for me, if you have like a snowmobile or a ATV or a motorboat that you're using when you're out in the backcountry, and again, pack frames, snowshoes, things that have screws or pieces of material that are modern equipment, types of screwdrivers and wire cutting pliers are your best friends. They are really great tools to have. I've had on many occasions had to resort to using a multi-tool to get basically backwoods mechanic work done on trucks, on ATVs, snowmobiles, boats, you, you name it. We've had to do some sort of backwoods jerry-rigging to get that stuff to work well. So a multi-tool is a great tool. It's a great toolkit in a sense. Don't get too caught up on having every single gadget you could possibly have. It's, it's not as important as really a good couple of different types of drivers for screw driving uh, or for driving screws, uh, as well as a pair of pliers. Um, those are really all I care about in a multi-tool. There's, I'm sure like a good friend of mine, Jim, he is a UXO bomb tech archaeologist, or he was uh, for a long while. I think he's retired from the, from the business now. And UXO bomb tech is unexploded ordnance. And therefore he had on his multi-tool specific tools for his trade, for his job, for being able to <clears throat> crimp primers, as well as being able to drive in. Uh, he had a special all tool, big heavy duty, all looked like a big old nail that you would be able to push into like C4 and other types of explosive compounds uh, to be able to put in the triggering mechanism that would set off the explosion. Uh, and so that was a multi-tool that he really depended on and he really loved that tool. That was like his primary tool everywhere we went and he, and he would use it for, you know, cutting wires that were in the way that had gotten across the trail and we we're going to get caught up in the fender of our, of our truck or into the axle and he would go and snip the wire free and get that out of the way. And sometimes he was using it just to bend pieces of nails and stuff to go make gadgets for things we need to get done. It was great to have. It really was. Some people are really anti-multi-tool and they're like i'd rather have a real tool set well tool kits that include every single screwdriver set every single type of plier every single type of uh files and awls and everything else can weigh a lot and take up a lot of room and suddenly your entire pack is just a toolbox and that can take up a lot of room it's not the most practical thing but in backwoods kind of emergency scenarios a multi-tool can often get a lot of that stuff done. What brand should you trust? You know what? Do your own research on that stuff. I'm not going to tell you which one you got to buy. A lot of people like the Leatherman Waves. A lot of people like the Gerber Pro Scouts. And a lot of people like <clears throat> the Swiss Tools. They're all good, well-made tools. It just comes down to what you prefer. So do your due diligence. Do your research. There's even some, I think there was a Kickstarter a couple of months back. Uh, an online Kickstarter, like a uh, crowdfunding project for a multi-tool that had interchangeable parts that you can just order yourself and basically customize the multi-tool to be exactly what you needed for your tasks. So whether you're a ranch hand out in the Western Canada or the Western United States, or you are a researcher in the high Arctic of Canada, or you are a hunter, or you are a, a backcountry snowmobiler, you're probably going to want to have a multi-tool of some sort. So do the research, figure out the one that works for you and for the tools you take with you. And it's a great thing to have. Multi-tools are good. Don't, don't knock them till you try them. They're, they're, de they're definitely, and they've definitely gotten better in the last 20 years. 
<clears throat> when I was a kid, multi-tools were a joke. Nowadays, they're really well-made. They're really well-made. The next tool on the list is saws. And saws are a lot of opinions. You could have a Baco Laplander. You could have a, uh, or their Sandvik model. You can have the Silky Gomboy or the Silky Pocket Boy. You can have a Corona saw. There's so many different brands out there for the, the folding, pruning style saws. And those are really good. Um, I'm kind of, uh, how can I say this politely? I've kind of stepped away from carrying a lot of smaller saws for the most part. Not because I think that they suck or anything like that. But where I really, truly benefit from a saw, in my experience and from my perspective, is for cutting firewood. That's really where I benefit with a saw. I don't really use a saw for a lot of other tasks here and there for some carving projects. When I need like some precise notches that may be in a denser wood that I can just easily carve into with my belt knife or pocket knife. Yeah, I will use a saw then, but for the most part, I depend on saws for what I do in the woods to, to get me big timber for birding for long nights, uh, or for cutting up rounds for the saw for the wood stove. That's really where I depend on a saw and really when I want a saw. So for me, I'm usually looking at the big saws, whether it's an Agua Canyon 24, uh, a Boreal 24, which is, you know, I'm still not fully sold on them. They're not my favorite folding saw. They're not my favorite bush saw. Um, they're great. Do not get me wrong. They're good for camping and they'll do a lot of what you need. I just find there's a lot of moving parts that can go wrong with them. And I don't like that. Um, that's just, and again, that's just my honest opinion. That's my humble opinion. I am not a fan of things that have a lot of moving parts that can fail. And I've had the Boreal 24 and I've had a Boreal 21, their smaller model, and I've had parts go missing on them. And suddenly the saw is practically useless. It, it doesn't really work anymore. I got to basically turn it into a bow saw with a bent branch at some point. Nothing knocking Boreal, uh, Agua Canyon. They, they really do care. And when I had a problem and I posted about it on one of our social media posts, I was just saying to people, Hey, always bring up backup pieces and backup parts, which is something I recommend anyways, no matter how good the tool is. Uh, they were immediately there like, Hey, customer support right here. We care. What do you need done? Like, we're sorry that this happened to you. What can we do to fix this? I was really impressed with their customer support. It was fantastic. If I was to carry a folding quote unquote buck saw, um, I really miss the trailblazer saws. When I was growing up, we had this brand called trailblazer. I believe they were based out of Nova Scotia and they made a lot of different kinds of saws, but one of the more popular ones was the trailblazing trailblazer takedown buck saw. And I had the larger model and it was tubular aluminum and everything fit inside that one handle and everything broke down and it would have a uh, tension bar with a wing nut. And that was how you would tighten the saw blade. There was multiple types of saw blades. You could have a metal cutting saw blade, a softwood cutting saw blade, hardwood cutting saw blade, and a bone saw blade. And they all packed together inside that tubular handle. And it was phenomenal. And there was very few moving parts. There was very few issues to get in the way. Uh, I loved that saw. And then one day trailblazer just stopped existing. And it's kind of sad to sound like this. I'm starting to feel like that old guy is like, nothing's good anymore. But they disappeared about, I'd say about 11 or 12 years ago. And I've been heartbroken ever since because they were so good. They were such great saws. 
there's been a new product out on the market. You can find them at Mountain Equipment Co-op and a few other places that basically mimic it. They're a Chinese model. They're, they're basically an exact replica of the Trailblazer saw, but they're a little smaller. And that's, again, we're kind of getting into that. Is it too big or too small? What kind of saw do you need? Um, if you're just doing a lot of backcountry camping and you're not doing a lot of long-term living on the land and you're not having to rely on a lot of big logs to keep you warm. Yeah. Yeah. Go get one of those saws. They'll do just fine. A 20 inch, 21, a 24 inch saw blade. They'll do just fine. I'm a big believer in when I cut firewood, I need a full size saw. And so whether that's a crosscut saw, a chainsaw, whatever it may be, I like to have a full size saw blade. <clears throat> and so I personally prefer to carry the Bob Dustrude saws. Um, they're a three part folding aluminum frame with a hand, uh, with a bow saw blade, usually, but I usually go for the 30 inch model that has a nut on one end and a lever on the other end to help ratchet tight the handle to the saw blade. And I have never had a problem with that saw ever, like whatsoever. They're phenomenal. And they're bigger. And when we're talking to people like Morris Kohansky, the late great Morris Kohansky, he would often say the perfect survival saw is from the tip of your nose, stretching out your, your arm to its extent from your nose to the tip of your fir, uh, longest finger. That's how long your saw should be. So from the tip of your finger stretched out to your side, stretch as far as it can stretch the very tip of that finger to the tip of your nose looking forward or just slightly towards that hand that's about how long you saw and that's going to be able to that's going to be able to allow you to cut through large logs when we're talking about firewood for the winter time we're talking about survival scenarios where you do not have a very good sleeping bag or you may have only a sleeping bag you may not have a tent and a wood stove and everything else and therefore you may just have a wool blanket. You may just be relying on the clothing that's on your back. And in those scenarios, you need to have a fire that burns all night and burns very, very hot and keeps you very, very warm and dries those clothing out so that you don't have frost buildup after a day or two out in the bush. So to cut, to get the most bang for your buck, you need to cut down hug sized trees. We're talking big trash can diameter trees. If you're up in the boreal forest, you're down here in the, you know, the Eastern woodlands where I live, we're in the Northern extent of the Eastern woodlands before you get up into the boreal here, you can kind of get by with smaller trees. You can get away with, you know, your ash trees, your maple trees, basically your dead standing hardwoods. You can usually get away with smaller diameter, but if you're up in that boreal forest and it's negative 30, negative 40, Lord help you if it's negative 50, you're going to want to have big logs that burn all night long, whether they're pine or spruce, cedar even, uh, but even poplar and birch, you're going to want those bigger diameter pieces of wood to keep that fire burning nice and bright all night long while you sleep in your lean-to or your super shelter or what have you. <clears throat> the smaller the diameter of the wood, the more often you have to refuel it because it's going to burn through faster and it's going to go to coals and then eventually ash faster. Bigger logs, they're going to be denser. They're going to take longer to burn through. And so the bigger the saw, the better the scenario. For craft work, for doing bushcraft, or you're just doing backcountry camping in the summertime, yeah, you can get by with a folding saw like a Baco Lapland or a Silky Gomboy. 
um, the po- or the Pocket Boy if you want to go even smaller. Uh, the Corona saws you can often find at most big box hardware stores often are just fine. You don't have to spend a lot of money on a saw. A lot of our students have learned over the years with us on our bushcraft courses that you can just bring a bow saw blade that you got from a hardware store, maybe a couple of key rings, like a split washer or something, and some sh- uh, some shroud line or paracord, and you can build a very good frame saw out in the woods, a buck saw frame saw, very easily in a, in a matter of minutes with a couple of thumb thick to two finger thick willows or dogwoods or whatever other kind of hardwood you got around. Uh, you can do the classic Kohansky style, what you see in Bushcraft by Morse Kohansky, or you can do the Kelly Harleton, uh, what some people call the butterfly uh, frame saw or the X frame saw, where you actually have two different uh, windlasses going to tighten and t- bring tension to the saw blade. <coughs> those are all great. Those are all good. Uh, those are great options. Uh, some people will actually carry a saw blade inside of a leather belt that has uh, two layers to it. So you can actually open up kind of like a wallet and slot like the billfold on your wallet, slide a saw blade in there and then wear it around your waist. And you have that saw blade whenever you need to do bushwork, uh, cutting wood. If you're doing things like making canoe paddles or you're making, you know, spoons and bowls and such, a smaller saw is going to be a lot easier to work with. And the Japanese style uh, pole cut style blades are really, really good. They are your friends. They can be uh, a Baco Laplander, as we said before, which is from the Baco company, I believe based out of Sweden. Um, they're one of the more popular, classic popular in the, in the bushcraft community. In the last, you know, eight, nine years, Silky has gotten really popular. Uh, they were already quite popular in the ultralight communities of the bushcraft kind of niches. But in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, I would say they've gotten very popular Um, my biggest complaint with the silky saws are that the blades are a little bit more fragile. They're a little harder in steel and therefore they are a little bit more brittle. So if you have a push stroke, like a return stroke, uh, it's a pull cutting saw. So unlike an American or Western style carpentry saw that is a push stroke saw, it's a pull cut saw or pull stroke saw. So every time you pull the saw towards you, it cuts into the wood. The return stroke, therefore, is whenever you push. And that is where things can kind of get hinky. If you're cutting down, you know, thumb-thick sticks, uh, thumb-thick saplings, not a big deal. You start getting up to three-finger-thick, wrist-thick, forearm-thick, thigh-thick. If that tree or, or trunk pinches that saw blade on the return stroke, there could be a very violent breakage. And that has been my experience with the silky saws. I still carry silky. In fact, one of the big saws that I carry is a silky katana boy. It's a very large saw blade in a folding handle uh, that is very, very good. It's one of my favorite tools to carry. But last spring, uh, when we were first getting into the COVID-19 pandemic, I was going to do a instant, uh, I think it was on Instagram. Yeah, it was an Instagram carving session where we were going to get on Instagram and we were going to go live and I was going to carve something out of buckthorn. I was like, let's use an invasive species wood so that we can kind of teach that good stewardship stuff that I'm always talking about. And I went up behind my house and started cutting into a buckthorn that was about mm, three inch diameter. And during the final return stroke, the wind shifted and pinched the saw blade. And as I pushed, 
the blade snapped right beside the handle and I actually cut into my hand and wrist uh, right along that jagged edge of the break uh, from the snap. And that was a bad cut. It wasn't right to the bone, but man, did it burn. Man, did it bleed. That was a bad cut. Um, I was able to treat it at home and not have to go to the hospital. Thank goodness during the pandemic, <clears throat> no stitches or sutures were required. I just used some Steri strips and I used some Minigan, which is a salve that we make out of spruce gum and bear grease. But anyways, that was an eye opener. Like I've, I've, I've had a couple of silky saws break now, and that one was pretty damned painful of a break. And I just kept thinking like, man, if I was in the backwoods, this would be a bad situation. So of course, a technique, knowing how to make good cuts and not have a saw blade get pinched is really important for that. But also you got to kind of have to consider like, am I going to be a little bit more aggressive with my cuts? Am I going to be using this saw for bigger chores than it should be being used for? If that's the case, you may want to resort to the Baco Laplanders because they are a little bit softer and therefore uh, in steel and therefore they are a little bit more resilient when it comes down to those high tension scenarios where a saw blade might get pinched, they'll bend more likely than break. Whereas the silkies, eh, not as much. They don't like to bend too much. <clears throat> but again, you can also think of it from the perspective of, was that job too big for the saw that I was using? Using the right tool for the right job is really important. Whether it's with a saw or a knife or an ax or what have you, you got to use the right tools. Three inch diameter tree. I think the silky gomboy should be able to handle that. It was the pinch that happened that really caused it to break. It wasn't too big of a piece of wood. Now you try to rely on a silky gomboy to cut arm, you know, hug size dam diameter wood. You're going to be there for a while, or you're probably going to break the blade. So be mindful of that. I'm a very big believer that you should bring a larger saw than you probably want to carry. Um, maybe I should rephrase that. You should carry a larger saw than you intend to cut the wood of. So if you plan on cutting, you know, knee or calf thick trees or wood, you should bring a saw that can cut three times that size so that you don't have to worry about it possibly being too big of a job. Um, bow saws, buck saws, folding katana style saws or sword saws, as some people call them. And there's the, the silky brand. There's also Bakema, also known as white horse. Uh, they're a Korean, I believe Korean knockoff of the silky saws. I carried a Bakema white horse, um, GS 650. I think it was called. It was the big model, their version of the Katana boy, uh, for years, for about three years, loved that saw. Never, never served me wrong, but it eventually broke the, the rivets holding the handle together actually just came apart one day when I was cutting through a piece of cherry wood <clears throat> and it just fell apart. So this past year we purchased a silky Katana boy, uh, their 600 series Katana boy, the pro blade. And I'm very impressed with it. It's, it's thicker. It's a little bit more resilient. Uh, it seems to be a little bit softer than the Gomboys, which is nice as well, but the teeth are very aggressive. They can cut through cedar very fast. Uh, we also have a, I believe it's a Lynx model or Lynx brand, uh, one and a half person crosscut saw. And I've done side-by-side -side tests on those and they cut almost identical in a lot of ways, but the finish from the silky saw, the Katana boy is finer. It's a much smoother finish, which means it's cutting cleaner. 
and it's also cuts a little bit faster, just a little bit faster, like maybe by a couple of, by a couple of seconds, which is great because unlike that full, uh, unlike that full, like one and a half person size crosscut saw, I can fold this saw up and safely stash it on the side of my rucksack. I can carry it over my shoulder and not have to worry about it cutting me. It's a lot safer than the classic, you know, Western American style crosscut saws. And it's more portable and it cuts faster. So why not? That's, that's a great saw to have. So what I'm saying is you got to choose what you're going to be using the tool for as per usual, using the right tool for the right job. If you're planning to go do a lot of summer camping and you're not going to be needing large, big pieces of firewood to really keep you warm and dry your clothes off too much. <clears throat> let's say you're up in the Halliburton Highlands or in Algonquin Park or Killarney or up in Agawa, or you're up in the Western Alberta region. You can get by with it, just a folding pruning style saw or one of those Agua Canyon Boreal 21s or 24s or those Bob Dustard saws. If you're going for bigger trips and you're going to be relying on fire to keep you warm, you may want to look for a bigger saw. That's really where it really shines. Those smaller saws really shine with the crafting work, again, carving, making small shelters, making baskets, things like that. And the big saws really shine in the firewood category or shelter building category. That's where they really shine. So getting the right tool for the right job and having a couple of saws at home that you can choose from can help you kind of pick that stuff up. Or you can bring a Baco Lapland or a Silky Gomboy and bring a bow saw blade rolled up, coiled up in a belt or in a package with you. And you can make a frame saw out there to do bigger chores. It all comes down to what you figure out you need to do. Past saws and multi-tools, I think the next kind of category that a lot of people take with them camping are spoon knives. Whether it's a Tuca cam, which are the bigger, wider blades that have long handles for more uh, for more leverage, or those classic like Mora knife brand, one-hand, single-edged, curved crook knives or spoon knives. They're great. I have a lot of friends that take them camping with them. They bring a little tool roll and they have got a couple of those in there with maybe a strop and some compound to keep them nice and honed. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong at all. I don't usually carry them with me. Um, I'm not saying that they're not useful. I have another tool that I prefer to take and that's really the main reason. Uh, there's a lot of brands out there and there's since the last, you know, three or four years since spoon carving has kind of hit kind of this Renaissance period here in the 2010s and into the 2020s, there's this kind of oversaturation of the market. Almost everybody has spoon knives available if they have a carving company of any kind or carving business, they start connecting with different brands. There's Beavercraft, which you can find on Amazon and a bunch of other online stores, there's the Mora knives, which are often looked at as like the introductory blades. They're, they're good to start off and learn with, but they're not necessarily the ones you want uh, for really serious spoon carving. There's people who are learning how to blacksmith them, their own tools. And that's a great option. We, I always applaud people learning how to make do with what they got and learning how to make new things with what they have available and learning new skills to get better at those other crafts. So if you want to get into bladesmithing and blacksmithing, more power to you. It's something that I love to do myself. <clears throat> On the other hand, you can also buy spoon carving knives from really well-respected, uh, good, reputable 
bladesmiths that are making them for the carving community. There's a lot of different brands out there. I'm not going to tell you again, which ones to buy, do your research, check them out. They're a good tool to have. Another option for gouging out bowls and spoons and cups are gouges. You can get swan neck gouges. You can get crook neck gouges. You can get straight fuller style gouges. They're all great. The problem with bringing gouges on a trip is they can weigh a little bit. <laughs> they, especially if you bring every single gouge you got, um, what I would recommend is bringing a smaller gouge and a slightly wide gouge. And that'd be about all I'd recommend you carry. And frankly, just bring the blades, learn how to make handles on the fly, learn how to make handles with your knife and your saw and your little tools that you can bring with you and use those, use those to make the handle. And that can kind of save you some weight. Uh, a lot of people do that, uh, over the years, a lot of people have done that. You can do the same thing with chisels, uh, where you just bring the chisel blade with its, uh, socket tang or stick tang, whichever one it is. And then you make, um, a handle that fits that specific tool. And then when you're ready to move to the next spot, you throw that handle in the fire, cook your last meal on the fire, put the fire out and move on. And when you get to the next spot, you make a new handle. That's a great way. But again, Really, if you got a spoon knife or a, a crook knife, you can kind of get away with not needing a gouge. They're they're great. I really do like gouges. Um, going back to the multi-tool conversation, one of the cooler tools that I've really missed having for a long time now is the carving jack or carving jack from Flex Cut. It's basically a multi-tool for spoon carving. <clears throat> and I've used it to carve cooksas and noggins. I've used it for carving so many different spoons and little figurines that I left out in the woods. They're just not inexpensive. They, they, they cost a pretty penny. There's, I think Schrade old timer has a knockoff version of it, though. I haven't been able to find one on the market for a while now. Uh, they're cheaper. The steel's good. Uh, I've, I've used a couple of them. They're good. They're not as good as the flex cuts, but you know what, for the price point, they're not bad. If you can find one still on the market, they're really not that bad, <clears throat> but yeah, gouges, spoon knives, all those kinds of tools are really helpful. I've done everything from carving as I said, cups and bowls to masks and spoons. And Lord knows what else I've created with those things over the years. They're really nice to have here and there. But again, I have a preferred tool that we'll get into when we get into my four tool system talk. Um, so yeah, spoons, chis uh, spoon gouges, uh, spoon knives and chisels. They're all very useful tools, but there's other, there's other options that I prefer. Uh, beyond that, let's dive into bigger blades. We will we'll talk about axes and, and, and such in a moment, but let's get into the bigger blades. One tool that I think is honestly less respected in North America than it really deserves is the machete. And that's not because I'm, you know, a fanboy of Joe flowers. I am. I love Joe. He's a great, he's a great guy. He's a good friend. I, I like him a lot. We're hoping to get him on the podcast soon. So Joe, if you're listening, which I doubt you are, but if you're listening, call me, call me Joe. But anyways, machetes are actually one of the most useful tools I've come across in my, in my field of study of bushcraft and surprisingly are not very popular in North America. And if they are carried in North America, they're often the, the lesser quality ones. 
<clears throat> my rule that I've kind of come up with on my own, and this is just, again, a humble opinion, but if you're going to buy a machete, buy it from a nation that requires machetes for their daily li- uh, livelihood in the rural areas. So if you are going to buy a machete, you shouldn't buy it from a place like a Canadian manufacturer or an American manufacturer. Not saying that they can't do a good job. Uh, Tops Knives have made some really nice machetes. <clears throat> and there's a few other brands like Ontario. The Ontario classic military machete has been a classic for a long time. But there's a few reasons I really prefer to get machetes from places like El Salvador or Colombia or Brazil. And that's because the machetes that are coming from those countries are machetes that are used in those countries all the damn time. They're, they're really helpful in that kind of light. If I was to buy, you know, an ax and I got it from a country that doesn't have a lot of trees, I'm going to be kind of suspicious of the quality of that ax. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to expect an ax that comes from North America, uh, Northern Europe, places that rely on axes on a frequent basis. That's not always the case. Sometimes the axe from a place like Germany or Switzerland isn't good made. It's not well made sometimes, but usually the, the, that's the, usually the exception to the rule that helps cement the rule down more for me. So when I'm looking for a machete, the first benefit is if I get it from a country like Brazil, El Salvador, Colombia, Dominican Republic. I know this is a country. These are countries that use machetes on a regular basis in their farmland, in their forests, in their ecologies in general. They're very common tools in those places. And therefore, if the tools are being used frequently there, they're probably going to be well-made because they depend on those tools. Another benefit is, and this is a very, I would say this is a colonial answer in a lot of ways they're cheaper. Like if you get a cheap machete from overseas, from other countries from overseas, often if you're paying cheaply, you're paying like 15 to $20 for a cheap machete for a cheap, often crappy machete that you find in your big box stores, like Canadian tire, Walmart. I'm going to, I'm going to name drop these places because the machetes that come from these places are often crap and they cost 15 to 20, sometimes 30, $40. And they're cheaply made and they're crap. They're just crap. The blades break, the blades bend. They don't hold an edge. They don't, they're they're either too too difficult to sharpen or they're too difficult to keep sharp. They're, They're just crap. Whereas when I went to Colombia back in 2019, we went to a hardware store in Leticia, in the, in the city closest to the forest, that, into the jungle that we were going into. And we just walked in and paid $3 Canadian and got really good machetes. So these machetes are made in Colombia, manufactured there in Colombia, and are used by the locals and they cost less than our cheap crappy ones here in Canada. The machete that I've been using on our quarter acre homestead project over the last three months. Yeah. I'd say three months now is a, uh, Imacasa from El Salvador, uh, Panga style. So it has that high swept pointy tip, a little bit more Golok looking, 
than a Latin style machete that you would see like the Ontario classic style machetes. Um, and that machete cost me $10, including the shipping $10. Now, is it the perfect machete? Best of all things? Not really. The handles are made of a softwood of some sort. Uh, and they, they really do start to break down over time, but the blades are exceptional. The blades are amazing. They take an edge from almost any stone you can think of, and they'll hold an edge pretty darn long, like a really long time. We can clear a lot of forest with a machete very quickly, and it doesn't dull until near the end of the day, unless you're banging off a couple of rocks or a piece of metal or something. It's, it's incredible how a well-made machete can work. And yes, I'm, I'm promoting Imakasa because that's the machete I have. I have an Imakasa 18-inch Panga, <coughs> and it's my favorite machete. Now, since we were talking about all the different options of tools with saws and everything else, let's talk about some options of machetes and things that you have to consider. If you think about a machete, whether it's a Parang, a Golok, a classic Latin-style machete, or a Panga-style machete, or a Bola-style machete, you've got to think about, A, safety. Machetes, regardless of their style or pattern, are arguably the more dangerous hand tools in the bush. But they are also very useful, whether it's clearing out grass that you're going to be camping on top of, whether that's <coughs> helping snip out little trees and stumps and, stu and such, whether that's knocking back the tree line in an area that you're trying to make an established camp in, whether that's helping you peel bark, whether that's clearing out cattail that you can then use for thatching. They're so versatile, but they can hurt you. They can really, really hurt you. Let's compare two different tools. Let's compare an ax to a machete. Let's say we have a 22 inch handle ax and we have a 22 inch blade machete. They're both the same length. They both have, you're both, and you're gripping them both with one hand, right? 22 inch ax versus 22 inch machete. They have practically the same size. The difference is that ax has a three to maybe four inch cutting edge. That machete has at least a 12 inch cutting edge. That means it has between three and four times the surface area of cutting edge, right? Like that's, it's got that much more to bite you with. And if you mess up, it's going to bite you bad. Machetes are often springy because they have to be able to hold an edge while being able to take abuse. They're made of a spring steel, usually like the 1080 style high carbon steel, <coughs> sometimes 1075. I've seen a couple that I was told were 1095. They're, they're high carbon steel. That is very springy, flexible steel, which means it can glance. It can de be deflected and have a lot of tension in that blade that makes it have a lot of energy which means it can bounce back and bite you. That is not necessarily a good thing. When we use a machete, you may see people in the jungle, in, in rural areas of South America or Mexico, using machetes. <clears throat> machetes are the number one rural tool in the world. The only place that they are not frequently used for rural work is North America. 
whether you go to Africa, Australia, South America, much of Asia, and even parts of Europe, they're using long, thin-bladed cutting implements to clear lawns. When we landed in Leticia, uh, Colombia, we pulled out of the airport in a cab and looked to our right, and there was a man at the airport with a 20 two, uh, sorry, uh, a, a, a two foot long bladed machete. So a 24 inch blade clearing grass, mowing the lawn right beside the airport. Think about that. If I was at Pearson airport in Toronto with a machete, even thinking of going near that building with a machete, I would be tackled by so many cops, <clears throat> but down there in Leticia, the machete is just a lawnmower that doesn't require gas and can go up onto steep terrain. It's just a tool. So that person that I saw was not wearing shoes and he was wearing shorts and he was not wearing a shirt and he was very efficiently clearing the grass, cutting and mowing his lawn in a sense. Just because you see an expert who grew up with that tool, walking around barefoot with that tool does not mean you, the newcomer to machetes should be doing so. This is kind of an, uh, an, uh, an example of the Dunning Kruger effect Wear closed toed shoes with your machetes. Um, on many occasions in the last couple of months, while I was clearing grass, my machete bumped my boot. And I was so glad that I was wearing closed toed footwear with that machete. And my technique was fine. It would just deflect once in a while and get me. And I technique has to always come in. You got to know how to swing a machete safely and yes, we all want the biggest machete we possibly can get because we think it's going to be much more efficient. Those really big, like the, the first machete I ever bought when I was in South America was a uh, 30 inch bladed machete. It's huge. It is. And still not even the biggest that Joe flowers has. Joe has machetes that are almost as tall as I am and I'm six foot one, but, but it was the biggest machete I could find. And I quickly regretted that purchase. Not because the machete was bad, but because of what it's what it's designed for and what I needed for was not conducive. It's a plantation machete. It's a farmland machete. It's for clearing grass. It's for knocking down cane. It's for cutting back bramble and vine in open areas with a big sweeping blade. I want a machete for bushcraft. I want a machete for in the woods. I want a machete that can carry on me. And I'm a novice with them. I'm not an expert with machetes by any means. <clears throat> I've been using machetes since I was a teenager, not since I was a child. Okay. I'm, I'm a, I'm 15, maybe 20 years into my machete experiences and I'm nowhere close to an expert, but the shorter the machete, the easier it is to control, easier it is to manipulate and make sure it doesn't harm you. <clears throat> the shorter the machete, the easier it is to cut through the brush that you're going through. If you're traveling through thick country, uh, the shorter the machete, the easier, easier it is to pack on you, whether it's tucked into a sheath or scabbard or tucked into your bag, it's easier to carry and it's easier to use and it's safer to manipulate. The machete is kind of like the opposite of an ax. The longer the ax, the safer the ax, the shorter the ax, the more dangerous it can be. Machetes are kind of the opposite. The shorter the machete, the easier it is to control all of that edge. And the longer they are, 
the more experience you need to work with them. So in general, I would say an 18 to maybe 22 inch blade is good for a starter. Uh, look for something like Tramontina, Imacasa, which also owns Condor Tula Knives. So if you want to look at some cool modern interpretations of the Imacasa's kind of blades, so Golox, Parangs, Kukri's, you can get those from Condor, which is a subsidiary of Imacasa. Uh, Tramontina, there's the Cornetas, which are a bunch of different like brandings that are just kind of uh, licensed in different countries. There's a lot of different good machetes. I've got a machete from the Dominican Republic. I've got a machete from Puerto Rico. I've got a machete from Colombia, El Salvador, several from El Salvador now because I really do like the Amacasas. I've got several Brazilian machetes from Tramontina. <clears throat> they're great. They're, they're absolutely great. And whether it's a classic style machete, like a Latin machete or a Panga, or it's a Golok or a Parang, uh, which are from Malaysia and Indonesia and other parts of the Southeast Asian areas. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It comes down to what you need it for, what you like. Some people are really big fans of those thick, stout, Ancola-style parangs or the kukris. Um, that's fine. I'm not knocking that whatsoever. I prefer a machete, the classic, thin, flexible-style machetes. That's my preference. Just because of weight and function and form of what I need the machete to do. They're, they're just fine for me. I'm happy with them and they often cost a lot less. So I like them. Uh, as Joe once joked uh, with me, he can buy a lot of machetes and not break the bank and that therefore he has a happier marriage. Uh, if you get into knife collecting, you can spend a lot of money real quick and break the bank on a frequent basis. And that can cause some stress with your spouse. Machetes, they're a lot cheaper, especially if they come from Latin American, South American countries you can find very inexpensive, really well-made machetes of a great variety for pretty inexpensive prices. So you can actually start your own machete collection. In fact, when I came back from Colombia, I brought back machetes for a bunch of friends of mine. I bought machetes for the friends that went on the trip with me. I bought a lot of, I bought a lot of machetes and I'm very happy to have them. And since I got back to Canada, I keep buying more machetes. Every couple of months, I see another good Imacasa, Tramontina, Corneta of whatever make and model. And I just keep buying the dang things because they're such useful tools. And I always end up giving one away to a friend because they're so useful. And I want someone to have a good tool. We cleared outside of the large trees on this property that we had to clear for the quarter acre homestead, which was a quarter acre of forest. Uh, we used machetes almost exclusively, whether it was for knocking down the weeds, chopping up locust branches to make into mulch. Uh, mowing out grass to bring and feed the geese and the ducks in the mornings every morning, uh, regardless of what the situation was, cl trail clearing, snipping back weeds, cutting back vines, cutting down small trees. <clears throat> I even used them for butchering the quail, which is a set, which is saying a lot because the quail are very small birds and I was using them to skin and gut and butcher the quail. Machetes are very useful tools, but they do require respect and training. So take that stuff seriously before you start playing around with a machete. Since we were talking about big blades like machetes, there's kind of this uh, entomological or kind of opinion-based difference between a machete and a large knife. Um, there's a lot of good large knives out there and they have a lot of benefits. They have a lot of, they have a lot of uses. A large knife 
is a very good tool that can be used a lot around camp. I personally don't think of a big knife as something that I take on the trail with me. It might be in my rucksack, but it's definitely not going to be on my hip. But when I'm in camp, I really do enjoy having a heavy knife. They're going to be really useful for splitting up kindling for the cook fires. They're really useful for lopping back underbrush that has grown into camp. And I got to get that out of the way. It's good for butchering. Uh, if I'm chopping up a beaver or I'm cutting up a bird like a goose or a duck at camp, I can take those wings and feed off really quick with a heavy knife. Uh, it's like a meat cleaver with a point on it. And whether it's a, you know, tops knives, I'm never going to knock tops knives. They've, they helped me bring my two of my favorite knives onto the market. <clears throat> love their work, love their quality. I love tops knives. They make a lot of big chopping knives, a lot of big camp knives. Uh, Buck has a few brands of the Buck Hoodlum that was designed by the late, great Ron Hood, uh, who also designed some knives with Topps knives. You've got brands like, again, Ontario and Condor Tool and Knives and Cold Steel and all these other companies. And of course, you've got custom knife makers who are making some amazing blades out there. My favorite big knife that I've ever had is a Luke Swenson camp knife that he made well over a decade ago well over a decade ago now and i'm obsessed with it it's my favorite knife we call it the dragon hunter as a joke with the dragonfly knife that i used to that has now been rebranded as the d fly 4.5 from tops um the dragon hunter is a beautiful well-balanced knife that i've done some crazy stuff with like heavy chopping and heavy work but also some very precise cuts and it holds its edge really well without rolling its edge or cracking its edge when used for heavier tasks um several years back a friend of mine and i had a bear that we had to get butchered um it was a roadkill bear it had been hit uh late in the summer uh sorry late in june <clears throat> so it was like 20 plus degrees and you got a black bear going to heat up a lot. So we had to get it butchered that night. It's not like we could just hang the meat and, and let it cool. We had to get it skinned, gutted and butchered as fast as possible. And so we skinned it and then we decided to quarter it and we were just going to put it in bags and freeze those until we had time to really get into the nitty gritty of butchering. And I pulled out that that what I call the Luke Swenson dragon hunter Luke Swenson now doesn't make a lot of big knives. He really likes focusing on pocket knives and folding knives, uh, but he's one of the best knife makers out there. Another great example of an amazing knife maker is Norseman, Dave Williams, retired gunnery sergeant, David Williams. We talked about him on the boys episode last summer. <clears throat> phenomenal knife maker, phenomenal knife maker. I've got one of his pieces sitting in front of me right now. It's, uh, a beautiful, well-made steel, well-tempered, well-heat-treated, really nice handles. He really puts a lot of heart and soul into his knives, and he's a student of Luke Swenson's. He, he, he was trained by Luke Swenson many years ago. So these big, heavy knives, when we were, got, when we were butchering that bear, uh, we chopped right through the pelvis, we chopped right through the, the shank bone uh, of the animal, and we chopped it up as quick as we could with that knife. We didn't have a, saw, a bone saw available. We didn't have all my butchering kit, uh, kit available. <clears throat> it was just really hot out and it was really dark out. And we had to get it done before sunrise. And so we just chopped it up into little tiny pieces and threw it into bags and froze it. And that edge 
was so sharp that at the very end, I skinned out one of the paws with that knife. It was still that sharp and that balanced. And it was a huge knife. It's not a massive knife. It's not like the, <clears throat> the K bar Becker BK nines and all that stuff. It's, it's about a nine inch blade, maybe eight and a half inch blade, but I've out chopped a lot of people with that knife. The, the benefit of a big knife is they can put a lot of power into chops for you. When you're trying to limb up a tree, when you're trying to knock down trees, split up some firewood in camp, they're really, really useful. Where they're not overly useful is carving. So you've got a bit of a hiccup there. Chopping knives are not really good for that kind of category. Chopping knives really reign supreme on sectioning animals or sectioning wood. That is where a big knife really comes into play. Whether it's, you know, cutting up saplings for a shelter, <clears throat> chopping and sectioning logs for the bed of that shelter, splitting up firewood for that shelter and its fire, uh, or for then chopping up dinner, whether it's the roots and stuff that you found out in the woods, like evening primrose tubers and Jerusalem archoke, uh, tubers and feral parsnip tubers, or you're cutting the head off that fish and putting it on a stick to cook over the fire. And you carve that stick with that big, heavy knife. It's a very Rambo kind of attitude when you carry a big knife. And a lot of people have a, have kind of a stigma around big knives where they think that that's what a survival knife is. <clears throat> Outside of building shelter and getting firewood, there's not a lot of use for a big knife. And those are two really important uses. Don't get me wrong, but I actually really do like carrying a smaller knife, a belt knife. Like we talked about on the knife episode. Um, I like a four and a half inch blade, little wider blade, but thin edge, a thin spine on it. So it can really shave into wood and really get into, into animal matter. Most of the time that I'm using a knife is for carving processing plant fibers in some way or processing animal fiber, whether that's the skin or the meat of that animal, or it's the bark or the wood of that tree, whatever it may be, that's when I'm going to be using a knife the most. If it can hold up a lot of tasks, that's great. Whether it's a, an andal tool, a knife or a skookum bush tool from Rod Garcia, or it's a handmade knife you made yourself in your backyard forge or a, a Mora knife, or a Topps Knives Dragonfly Knife, aka the D-Fly 4.5, whatever it may be, the Fieldcraft Knife from Topps Knives, uh, the, the oh yeah, Hunters of uh, Hunter Gunman, the Hog 4.5 from Norseman, <clears throat> phenomenal blade, Phenom I love the geometry of that knife, and there's a Topps Knives model, but Norseman also makes his own, I think at uh, Survival Hardware you can find those knives, phenomenal blades, phenomenal blades. You can also find local custom knife makers. You can also find, you know, one of my favorite belt knives to this day. And we were using it a lot on this canoe build, which is why it's coming to mind, is a simple Green River four and a half inch blade butcher knife. It's got a simple hardwood handle. I think it's maple and a cold rolled steel, very thin, mostly flat ground blade that is just phenomenal at butchering and skinning, but also carving and, and shaping wood. It's one of my primary knives and they're like 20 bucks Canadian, $22 Canadian. You really can't blow your nose at that. They're, they're an ancestral knife that's been around since the fur trade era. 
it's it's a great knife absolutely great knife but for chopping knives you know there's a lot of options out there some big ones that uh, come from big name brands you can also find custom knife makers just like the smaller knives <clears throat> but we also have pocket knives pocket knives can be a swiss army knife they can be a spider co resilience they can be a bench made bug out they can be a bunch of different kinds of folders they can be a cheap inexpensive open all number eight one of my favorite knives out there it's like the folding version of that green river knife or it can also be a ford peasant coming from new zealand a phenomenal knife for under ten dollars phenomenal folding knife the benefit of the folding knife is it's a discreet easy to carry around extra cutting edge it's not your primary knife it's not the number one knife you go into the woods with it's the backup carving skinning gutting processing meat processing veggies kind of tool my usual go-to is a benchmade bug out i'm really a big fan of that it's one of my favorite knives i think we talked about it on the edc the everyday carry episode back in the spring or uh, whenever we did that episode man i'm we've done this is like our 79th or 80th episode now it's crazy anyways <clears throat> that's one of my preferred knives, but I've carried a lot of different pocket knives over the years. There's nothing wrong with a Wenger or Avenger or Wen Wenger uh, Swiss Army knife or a Victorinox Swiss Army knife. There's nothing wrong with those. Um, some friends of mine carry the SOGs or SOG knives. Other people carry Gerber knives. I'm personally not a fan of folders in general. I've got a couple that I really do depend on. My Benchmade bug out uh is mostly an everyday carry that i take into town with me it's not usually something that i take into the woods with me though sometimes it ends up out there <clears throat> my other folders that i often depend on i've got a sitting right beside me actually a tops knives fieldcraft five inch folder heavy duty knife this is a heavy duty folding knife absolutely heavy uh liner lock style knife which is not my preference of a locking mechanism on a folder but that's what they have and that's fine uh, I carried for many years a Spyderco Resilience. I gifted it to my nephew this past uh, winter. I gifted him a Spyderco Resilience that had been with me since many years ago. Uh, Ontario Rat Ones, RAT Ones, phenomenal steel. It's actually a high, it's actually a high carbon stainless uh, for a very inexpensive price with a nice handle on them. They they're very very nice knives. Um, the number one issue with most folding knives that I have, that a lot of people in the in the bushcraft community will turn their nose up at a folding knife because folding knives come on a pin and that pin can fail. Yeah, if you abuse the knife, it will fail. So can your Mora knife. So can your expensive, fancy custom knives. doesn't matter. They, if you abuse a knife, if you take it past its threshold of what its tolerances are, it'll break. That's what they do. Don't do those things. Right? That's, that's, that's straightforward. So that, that with that out of the way, my number one gripe with most pocket knives is the pocket clip, the retaining clip that then sets it onto your pant pocket. And then you walk by some heavy brush. You kind of finagle your way through a bunch of cattails in the swamp. You pull your seatbelt off really quickly. you walk by a screw sticking out of a deck, uh, deck railing and you lose your knife because that, that retaining clip gets snagged and it pulls out. <clears throat> not a fan of that. My number one folding knife that I carry with me is uh, in the bush. Again, is this Topps Knives Fieldcraft folder. It comes in a leather case that has a snap fastener and a belt loop. This goes on my belt. 
this is what I carry on me when I want a folder is in the woods is something that's not going to easily get lost. If you're going to carry a folding knife and honestly, if you're going to carry any knife, I highly recommend carrying brightly colored knives, whether they're orange, red, blue, what have you make sure they're brightly colored. And that way you don't have to worry too much about it getting lost. If it does get knocked off your pocket or it falls out of your pocket, if you take a trip or something, or if you jump off your ATV or snow machine too quickly, it's usually pretty easy to find. You just look for the brightly colored knife. Don't get ones that are camouflaged. Don't get ones that are drab green. You're not a commando. You're not a mercenary. You can wear brightly colored things. I'm, I'm very much a fan of wearing brightly colored things, whether it's tools or clothing. So they're easier to see, but also so that you're easier to see and things are safer that way. And it doesn't have to be, you know, Hunter blaze orange. It can be sky blue. Uh, I got many years ago, I gifted my father a Benchmade Griptilian mini Griptilian, the little one. And it's a sky blue handle out of grivery or some sort of uh, nitrogen, nitrogen, wow, I'm tired, nylon plastic kind of handle. The Griptilians from Benchmade are absolutely magnificent knives. Got him that in sky blue. He griped about the color for a couple of weeks. And then one day he lost it in the lawn and saw it immediately. As soon as he realized the knife was gone, it was sitting right there. He loves the knife ever since. I love the blue colored handles. I like blue. It's a good color. It stands out. It's easy to find whether it's a Mora knife, your big chopping knife, or a pocket knife. Go with a go with a bright color that you can recognize out in the woods. Okay. There's other options for knives. There's a ton of options for knives. There's so many different brands. Buck, Case, uh, Victorinox, uh, Wenger, Sford. Benchmade, Spiderco, Tops Knives, uh, K-Bar. So many different companies are putting them out. And now you can get also custom pocket knives from people like Luke Swenson and Norseman from Survival Hardware who are putting out really pretty, beautiful, functional pieces of art. Like true functional art. I, I love them. You can also go cheap with a Sford Peasant or a Open L number eight. It's It all comes down to what your budget is and what you're looking for in a pocket knife. Folding knives are great. You do have to be mindful of their limitations, just like any other tool. It's not recommended you try to baton through a piece of oak with your folder. Okay. But if you got to open up a fish you caught, if you got to carve off some thorns off of that locust stick that you want to use for a fishing rod, if you got to open up some packages, if you got to open up a can, uh, a can uh, sorry, a can, wow, a pumpkin uh, that you want to use for a cook pot to also make into your food, it's a very useful tool. It's a very handy tool. My number one hunting knife is a folder because it stays in my pocket until I need it. There, there are great options out there, plenty of great folding knives. Do your research to make a decision that you like and stick with that. Or, hey, get into collecting folding knives. That's another great option of a hobby you can get into. Unlike machetes, it will cost you a little bit. Okay, so we've gotten to the end of the podcast. And there's really only one last thing to really dive into, and that is the four-tool philosophy. There's certain outdoors instructors that talk about the five tools, and that includes what I'm going to talk about plus a saw. Uh, other people talk about uh, how you should carry many tools to make light uh, light tasks. I also mentioned that there's certain types of tools 
that you can carry like spoon knives or gouges that I would rather carry another tool for because it's more conducive to what I want and what I need to accomplish. <clears throat> the four tool philosophy that I often, uh, that I often recommend is something that me and my good friend, Nick Dillingham have been kind of developing over the last seven or eight years. The concept is you really only need these four tools to accomplish the majority of tasks out there in the woods. For the most part, you only need these four tools, especially if you work on your skill set, not your toolkit. Okay. Your mental toolkit is more important than your physical toolkit. We we've talked about this on the knowledge first episode. We've talked about this on the knife and ax episodes. Your physical toolkit is nowhere close to as important as your mental toolkit, what your skill level is. So as you practice your skills and practice the craft of bushcraft, you will require less and less tools to get the same tasks accomplished. The more you know, the less you carry. That philosophy is more than just a nifty little catchphrase you can add to your YouTube channel. It's a really important philosophy that we've taken very seriously to try and understand and make our skills shine while our tools simply do the tasks we ask of them. <clears throat> the four tools of the four tool philosophy are the axe, the knife, the crooked knife, and the awl. The axe has already had a podcast episode all about it. The knife, well, we've talked about it twice, both in the knife episode and just a moment ago on the podcast. <clears throat> the crooked knife is also known as in Ojibwe, Wagikoman or Wagikman. There's also the name Mokatagan, which is a Cree word. It's a EU Cree word. The awl, also known as the Magus, is another tool that's a perforating or poking tool. You can have a triangle awl, a square awl, or a round awl. Or you can have other options out there. There's even diamond awls if you'd like those, <clears throat> or rhomboid awls, and a bunch of other types of awls. In general, these four tools, the belt knife, the axe, the crooked knife, and the awl should accomplish the majority of the tasks you require to accomplish. This does not include the saw because at the end of the day, your axe can accomplish whatever a saw can do. Period. There, there's no arguing that. An axe can accomplish whatever a saw can do. <clears throat> Felling a tree truncating or limbing the tree, bucking the logs into pieces of firewood or into certain lengths, uh, trimming and carving out and roughing out spoon blanks and paddles and everything else can all be accomplished with an ax. Therefore, we don't need the saw. The saw is unnecessary. It's a redundancy. Now, I'm going to say right now that I do carry a saw with me in the woods. As we talked about earlier, I do carry saws, but the philosophy is that I only require the saw. I only use the saw to speed up tasks or to do certain tasks safer. For example, I don't want to chop firewood in low light environments. I don't want to buck firewood with an ax in low light environments. If it's dusk, early morning, things like that. I don't want to be using an ax if I'm extremely stressed. I don't want to be using an ax in very windy, dangerous situations. A saw is a safer tool in those scenarios, but my skills need to speak for themselves. The ax is a better tool because I can accomplish 
many tasks beyond what a saw can usually accomplish. I can carve with an axe. I can truncate that tree. I can limb that tree. I can buck that tree. I can fell that tree all with an axe. I can split firewood with an axe. You can split firewood with a saw too, but it's a very skill focused technique that is not overly useful on bigger pieces of wood. If I'm splitting all my firewood for the sugar bush, I'm mostly using an axe for that. If I'm going to be building a shelter, I can do most of those tasks with an axe just as quickly or just as efficiently as I could with a saw. The only thing that is really, you know, detracting on the axe is safety. So if my skills are up and my technique is up and my experience is up and I focus on technique and building my knowledge base, then there is no problem with an axe. You just have to know how to be safe with them. The crooked knife, also known as the Mokatagan, or Wagikman, or Wagikaman, depending on dialects and how, whoever is the language teacher that day, is a one-hand draw knife, a one-hand gouge, a one-hand spoon knife, a one-hand router, in a sense, because I can round off or mortise off, not mortise off, sorry, use the inside of the radius of the curved blade to round off snowshoe pieces, canoe thwarts, canoe paddle handles or grips. I can use it in many different ways. I can make spoons, bowls, cups, masks, small dugout canoes, sugaring troughs. I can then make the sugaring paddles to make my maple sugar. I can make my ricing sticks very quickly for knocking manolmen into my canoe. I can build my birch bark canoe with a crooked knife, whether it's the thwarts, the gunnels, even the sheathing can be even split with a crooked knife if I do my skills properly and I've got the right materials. Everything can be accomplished in that sense. In a sense, the Ojibwe crooked knife or the Anishinaabek Mokoman, so wow, that's just Ojibwe knife, sorry. Anishinaabek Wagikman, the Ojibwe crooked knife, is kind of the Ojibwe Swiss army knife. In a sense, it is a multi-tool. It accomplishes so many tasks. If I was to try to do everything a crooked knife does with other tools, I would need a draw knife, a spoke shave, a gouge, a spoon knife, a uh, inside radius scraper. I would need a straight knife. I would need all these different tools that are accomplished with one simple tool, the mokatagan or the crooked knife. Now, they are not very common on the market and many of the ones that are on the market that are pot, that are uh, production level leave something to be desired or some things to be desired. But more and more people are learning the way of the crooked knife. Mokotogonism is as Nick jokingly calls it and are learning how to make crooked knives and understanding the angles. Now there's, it's a lot more complicated than simply a bent handle and a straight blade with a curve at the end of it. There's a lot more going on than that. There's a lot of geometry happening to make sure that everything's lined up for the most comfortable carving, or else you're going to be suffering in the wrist and the forearms whenever you do a lot of heavy carving sessions. But I have accomplished with making spoons, masks, bowls, cups, uh, feast plates, sugaring troughs, everything with a crooked knife, with a mokatagan. Very, very, very important tool. Very important tool. And frankly, something that more people should be carrying in the bush and learning how to work with. Um, 
it's one of the tools that we frequently make with our smithy at our at the quarter acre homestead we have a small smithy where i make awls and crooked knives on a frequent basis it's one of the first tools that we teach our staff to make so that they can have a good crooked knife with them when they work in the bush with us and work with our students when we work on canoes it's one of the first tools we pull out and sharpen and get ready for the for the build of birch bark canoes right now we're repairing canoes that belong to a good friend of mine we're not building canoes right now we'll be building two really nice canoes next summer i'm we're, we're beginning the material harvest in in uh late september of this year and we're going to continue the harvest all the way till july and then we're gonna be starting the build of two uh, of my dreams. An Ojibwe, a Western Ojibwe style canoe and an Eastern Ojibwe style canoe, a long nose canoe, which the Western Ojibwe style and a Mississauga style canoe that's got the pointed bow and stern. Really excited to work on those canoes this next year in 2022. But until then, I got to work on my skills with the crooked knife and I got to work on my skills with the all. The all is the all encompassing, pardon the pun, poking implement it is a perforating tool that is used to bore holes it's like a drill bit that doesn't require a drill you are the drill um the two most common awls that are going to be used in bushcraft are the square awl which means the cross section of that spike is square it's got nine degree four nine degree corners the other version is a triangular awl which is going to be an equilateral triangle cross section the triangle awl is a much more aggressive cutting awl, and you can actually use it as a scraping tool even to finish off work like an axe handle or a canoe paddle, whatever it may be. You can actually use it as a scraper um, to finish it off, and, and we've talked about finishing wood in a previous episode. The square awl is a little bit more delicate. It's a little bit more gentle. It's a little bit slower going, but it's also a little bit more stable because it's got full 90 degree corners instead of sharp, you know, 33 degree corners or whatever the angle is on a triangle, equilateral triangle. Um, very, very, very stable edge. So it's really good for boring through cedar wood and birch bark, especially because it's a delicate tapered edge that is going to be able to poke through at a very steady pace. Both the triangle awl and the square awl can be used almost identically. They are both very good tools. It really comes down to your personal preference. Over the last little while, as someone who does my own bladesmithing, I prefer square awls simply because they're easier to make. Uh, when we're blacksmithing, we take a round piece of steel and we start striking across its face from the tip up towards the tang tapering it into a flat piece and then we turn it 90 degrees and repeat that process or we can go from tang to tip depending on how you're trying to taper it and what you're trying to accomplish that 90 degree turn makes a square surface so it's very easy to do how do you make a triangle surface you need specialized hardies or special tools for your anvil and your hammer you can build special fullers for it or spring fullers for it. You can build hardies for it that have to have special angles put in so that when you smack that hot steel, it gets squished into a triangle shape. Not the easiest way to go about it. So square awls are my preference simply because of the ease of manufacturing, not because they're any better. I actually really do like triangle awls because of how aggressive they cut and how fast they can work. But it's easier to make a square all 
Most of the time, if I'm making a triangle all, I'm going to be very frank here. I use a grinder, whether it's a belt grinder or an angle grinder, and I find myself a triangle file. And I just grind it to a point and take off all the file marks until it's bare, smooth, sharp steel. And then I reheat treat the whole thing so it's not too hard and brittle. That's how I usually end up making a triangle all is not with blacksmithing at all, but actually with stock removal techniques with a grinder of whatever type I'm going to use. Alls are very important. They can be very simple. We often make round tang alls or scrolled tang alls uh, to simply hold on to the scroll tang as your grip. And that's how we've done most of our canoes is with scroll tang alls. I've made a few that have really nice antler handles. I've made a few that have some nice hardwood handles. <clears throat> Both Nick Dillingham and Kevin Finney make some exquisite, again, functional art alls that you can purchase yourself if you'd like. They make beautiful pieces, absolutely beautiful pieces out of alls. Alls do not get the recognition they really deserve because they can bore through wood, bark, leather, rawhide, everything really, except for stone, they can really work through. They're really important tools for being able to make holes for stitching baskets, holes for sewing canoes together, holes for fixing and repairing lacerated uh, leather pants or leather chaps for buckskin work and everything else, but also for leather boots, working with uh, tin cloth even. I've been able to poke holes through tin cloth and sew it back together when it got knocked by an axe or cut up from abuse. Alls are so useful, so useful. I use them for making fishing net, uh, uh, fishing net shuttles. <clears throat> I use them for making birch bar baskets. I use them for making holes from the most part on everything I need holes on. They're very, very useful tools. Traditionally, they were made out of copper or the baculum of a black bear because a black bear's baculum, which is the penis bone of a black bear, has a triangle cross section. So it was very easy to grind it to a sharp point and have an all for birch bark and elm bark work. Um, later on, when Europeans arrived, we started using steel. And that's where the, the, the megos or the all kind of ends is the story changes from using copper and bone uh, for alls to steel. Pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. There's a lot of types of alls. There's the zigzag all, which has like a triangle all and a square all of two different sizes, or it's going to be two square alls with two different bore diameters or, or simple diameters. And they're great. Round alls, they're really good for weaving. They're really good for basketry. They're not so useful for bark work. They're not so useful for woodwork, but they're really useful for uh, leather work and weaving. Okay. So having a couple of different types of alls is never a bad idea. There's plenty of varieties out there that you can kind of manufacture and make yourself. And, or you can buy from people like Kevin Finney, Nick Dillingham, and a few other folks that make really nice alls. Or you can come out when we finally start doing our in-person classes. We're planning on doing an intro to bladesmithing and blacksmithing. And one of those uh, sessions, we're going to start off with making square alls so that you can learn how to make a simple scroll tang all And very straightforward tool to make. And if you don't like the scroll tang, you can keep it a straight tang and make your own handle for it and then put them together. Very, very easy stuff to make. But anyways, <clears throat> that is the four tool system. It's going to allow me to fix birch bark canoes. It's going to allow me to make baskets. It's going to allow me to fix and repair my tools and my gear. I can make new axe handles. I can make ha uh, bowls, spoons, cups. I can make 
pieces of leather clothing, piece of leather equipment to replace pack straps or tump lines or what have you. These are the four tools that I really think are the epitome of bushcraft. If you can get to those four tools for the Canadian woods, excuse me, got the hiccups again. That's really all you need. And again, machetes are great. Camp or chopping knives are great. Whether it's a kukri or a bowie knife or what have you. Saws are great. They're all great tools. And I own a lot of them. I love them. Don't get me wrong. But if you're trying to increase your skill level, if you're trying to become a better bush crafter, if that's a term you want to be called, the goal, I think, should be to pare down your toolkit until you're at four tools, specifically the axe, the straight knife or belt knife, the crooked knife, and the awl. If you want to bring a saw, feel free. I'm not going to judge you for that. But if you really want to test your limits and get yourself really well experienced and skilled with your tools, try the four tool philosophy. So this is the episode all about tools of the trade. I want to thank all of you for tuning in. I want to thank every single one of you for what you've done for us, for uh, supporting us through this whole experience of the Canadian Bushcraft podcast. You dear listeners are exactly why we keep doing this podcast, but there's also some very important people we got to thank people like Trent road, Brady Campbell, Amy Lynn, and all of our other supporters at Patreon. You keep us financed. You keep us having the lights on, having power, having internet, being able to feed sushi and the ducks so that they don't overwhelm us and take over the whole country. You are saving the country and saving the sovereignty of the Anishinaabek people by keeping those ducks, those geese, and that damn dog fed. Thank you for keeping us alive by keeping them satiated and keeping their bloodlust down. You are a hero. Pat yourself on the back if you're a member of Patreon. Thank you so much, all of you. And again, to all of our listeners, thank you so much. And get out there. Start playing with your tools. Start practicing, whittling, wood splitting, carving, everything. Do it safely. Learn proper, safe technique. This is important stuff. We want to be happy and healthy whenever we're in the woods. So do everything as safe as you can. Tread softly. Carry the right tools. Learn how to use them the safest way possible. You don't want to end up being like my shin bone with a good axe scar on it or my hand, my left hand covered in scars from knives and gouges and Lord knows what other cut. I think I got actually a all stuck in my hand one time. Anyways, don't be like me. Learn how to use these tools in a safe, safe, secure manner. Till next time, I'm Caleb Musgrave. Thank you for tuning in. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast.